It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the multiplexes and at the art house. Warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. You'll also hear about new and old films on Blu-ray and on DVD. Plus, you'll hear all the latest Hollywood gossip. I don't care! Okay, maybe not the latter, but it is time for film sociology with WFYI's film guru. Kaiser Shizzy! No, that's Matthew Sosi. It's such a fine line between stupid and, and clever, yes. Let's see how thin the line is. Here's your host, Matthew Sosi. Hello there, film lovers. Welcome to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Sosey. The show is available as a podcast. It's also available on iTunes. And we have a blog, which someday we'll update at filmsociology.tumblr.com. In the second half of the show, we'll dip into the archives, but... uh. It's just you and me today. Uh, part of the reason is I'm actually in a show that opens this weekend and is running next weekend. I'm in Richmond Civic's production of A Few Good Men, which runs, uh, depending on, of course, when you're listening to this, the 23rd, the 24th, September 30th, October 1st, and October 2nd at Richmond Civic Theater. I'm playing Judge Randolph. Yeah, I'm playing the judge. Anyway, go to uh, GoRCT.org for more information. So that's been cutting into my uh, screening time a little bit, but that's okay. Uh, because there is something new in theaters if you don't want to wait in the lines for the remake of The Magnificent Seven. And I will say this about the Anton Fuqua-directed Denzel Washington-starred remake of The Magnificent Seven. It did inspire me to show The Magnificent Seven to a few friends, including my daughter, uh, a couple of Sundays ago. So at the very least, the film has done that. There you go. But the, one of the alternatives uh, to seeing The Magnificent Seven remake is a film called The Hollers, which stars and is directed by John Krasinski. And on paper, it's the uh, guy who returns home to dysfunctional family story, on paper, you could see a big-budget uh, studio film making this, and it's broad and loud and not that fun. But this one is smaller, it's independent, it's an independent picture, and you have a solid cast of actors who bring a lot of depth to the story of a son who returns home when his mom is discovered to have a brain tumor and she has to go in for surgery, and uh, some old... Old fires go up between he and his brother, as well as a lady from his past, and he's got his present, and the, and the Krasinski character is trying to, he's he's got a pregnant girlfriend, but they have not talked, they've talked about getting married, but he's avoided it. You, so these sound like familiar storylines. It also helps that you have a rock-solid cast. Besides John Krasinski, the parents are played by Margot Martindale and Richard Jenkins. Charlotte Copley, for you District 9 fans, plays the brother. The pregnant girlfriend is played by Anna Kendrick. You also have coming off the bench, the uh, you have Charlie Day playing the nurse of Margot Martindale's character, who's married to a, an ex-girlfriend of the Krasinski character. 
and uh, the and surprisingly a very fun performance from Josh Groban playing the husband of Krasinski's brother's ex-wife. So anyway, lots of solid. Even even Mary Kay Place comes off the bench with one scene. Um, so it's rooted. It's not wacky. It does deal with uh, family issues and dynamics. So anyway, it's a grown up film, and it's uh, we're you know we're almost into October. So um, anyway, it's really well done. It's uh, it's not you know it, it's probably not Oscar material, but it doesn't have to be Oscar material to be really good. So anyway, it's out there. Go check that out. Um, and that's that's as far as the new stuff. Uh, there's a couple of titles of note on Blu-ray. Probably the most important one because I don't know who asked for the Ninja Turtles sequel, and I don't know who asked for the sequel to Neighbors, although I'm sure the cast of Neighbors asked for that. But uh, the 25th anniversary Blu-ray of Beauty and the Beast is out, so hopefully you have a great big TV to enjoy that. And uh, also, out, probably the other big title that came out on Blu-ray this week, um, the Matthew McConaughey Civil War epic Free State of Jones, where... Uh, McConaughey's character is a deserter, and he declares the area his you know declares the area a free state for all people of all races and backgrounds. Um, on on paper, it looks like it could have been a big piece of Oscar bait, but they released it in the summer. But that's okay, and uh, it it could have been over overwrought. It is for a not quite sweeping epic, um, pleasantly underplayed. Um, there is, for instance, a great example is there is a scene where McConaughey is reading the declaration of creating the title of the film, The Free State of Jones, and uh, he underscores it. And it doesn't sound like the dialogue uh, or tone of voice that McConaughey has been doing in a couple of films as well as a couple of commercials. But um, it, it doesn't feel like a Civil War Braveheart. And that was my concern or a Civil War Robin Hood, the not fun Robin Hood with Russell Crowe um, or a uh, or a Braveheart. Um, it, it's he, he he makes a declaration, no music underscoring it. Um, so anyway, it's it, it could have been a lot more uh, overwrought and ha- hit you over the head of with a hammer. Although in this case, to borrow a term from Ed Johnson out at Nouveau, you get hit over the head with a cardboard tube. You get the message. It doesn't quite hurt. Um, the film, I believe, if I remember right, is rated R, and to have an R-rated epic, and the, the action sequences, especially in the first scene, um, are pretty harsh. Uh, one of the selling points in the ad campaign is, of course, saying that's from the director of The Hunger Games. It's from Gary Ross. There's also a side uh, plot, without giving away too, too much, of McConaughey's relationship with an African-American woman. Um, and and there's a couple moments, especially early, early on, that's a little jarring because it does jump from the, time, the Civil War era to about the 1950s, and it involves a family member of McConaughey's. But... Uh, and I was worried that it was going to be a bit of a distraction, and it it winds up paying off for the most part at the end. Um, it, it doesn't get it does the film doesn't quite get heavy handed, although there is a scene near the end on election day in 2016. Um, but it it's it teeters, but it doesn't fall. So actually, this turned out to be a better film than I thought. It didn't do well financially, but that doesn't mean squat. Um, anyway, it's it's worth renting. It's it, go go check that out as well. Um, 
I do want to get to uh, dead people we like because we don't have time for dead people we don't like. Uh, uh, Charmaine Carr, best known as playing uh, Lisa Von Trapp in The Sound Sound of Music, passed away at the age of 73. Lots of jokes online about her being 16, going on 17, and she died at 73. Um, This was only her her, this was her big film. Um, I think she did one other TV film. And then uh, went into the private business. So anyway, she she made her mark on there. Salute, of course. Playwright Edward Alby. Um, again, this is I, I, it's been stage sociology the last few weeks, but in this case, of course, um, should be noted. Of course, best known for writing the play "Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf." Also wrote plays like "Zoo Story" and "A Delicate Balance." Somewhere in the world right now, a young actor is discovering Edward Alby's work. A young actor is probably working on a scene in an acting class or a directing class, and more than likely it's going to be Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf um, or Zoo Story. I, I got to see a production of Zoo Story when I was in college. Um, something that I should probably watch again, my two friends, Jeff Paris and Christopher Barton, did it. Um, pretty intense for a college production. One of those shows, I don't know if I could see it a second time, but I think 30 years has passed, so I might give it another shot. But, of course, uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which caused quite a stir in the uh, early 1960s, made into a pretty controversial film in 1966. Four great performances, even though two got awards. Uh, all four of them were great. Uh, Richard Burton, of course, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, who won Best Actress, George Siegel, and Sandy Dennis, who won Best Supporting Actress. Um that kind of helped break the barrier as far as the studio system. Besides the younger independent films geared toward young audiences, but uh, the fact that, and that was really a film that was controversial because merely because of language. Um, there's some really brutal mind games in this film if uh, and in, in this play. If you've never seen it, I highly recommend watching it and reading it or seeing it. Um, when it's done by the right actors, it can be a a truly moving experience in one way, shape, or form. Um, so anyway, also, so Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was made into a film in 1966. Um, his play, A Delicate Balance, with, if I remember right, uh, Catherine Hepburn, Paul Schofield, Lee Remick, Joseph Cotton, Betsy Blair, Kate Reed. That's 1973. Uh, Zoo Story, I know, was made into a TV movie, I think, in 1980. Um, can't remember if that's for American television. Also, uh, The Ballad of the Sad Cafe was made into a film in 1991 with Vanessa Redgrave, Keith Carradine, and Rod Steiger. By the way, there's a nice Rod Steiger joke in The Hollers, so big shout-out to Margot Martindale. It's a scene where she has to uh, get her head shaved for, to prepare for surgery. Anyway, so um, salute to Edward Albee. And uh, we just, of course, found out a couple of days ago that film director Curtis Hansen passed away at the age of 71. Um, this is a man whose work, I think I've pretty much seen his entire filmography. Started out as a writer. Uh, first screen credit was making the screenplay for the 1970 low-budget horror uh, thriller The Dunwich Horror. Also wrote and directed Sweet Kill. Um, wrote The Silent Partner, White Dog, which was directed by Samuel Fuller. Wrote the screenplay for Never Cry Wolf, which I remember seeing in the theater. And it's more than just uh, Naked Charles Martin Smith, for those who are into that. It's a beautiful story of man with nature. Um, the TV film The Children's of Times Square. The Steve Gutenberg film The Bedroom Window, which he also directed. He also directed Losing It, which is an underrated Horny teenager movie with a young Tom Cruise, Jackie Earl Haley, and Shelley Long. Worth checking out. 
um, directed Bad Influence in 1990, and uh, became a, na- a name director with the 1992 thriller The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, which has a very special place in my film life and my buddy Laura Jansen, and uh, as well as Holly Williamson and Debbie Thomas. You know what we're talking about. This was uh, backed up. He followed up The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, which was a huge hit with another action film, The River Wild which uh, got Meryl Streep to be in an action film, along with uh, Kevin Bacon and David Strathairn. And then in 1997, he won an Academy Award for the screenplay of the film that he wrote, that he adapted and directed, L.A. Confidential, the film that should have won Best Picture. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Titanic. L.A. Confidential is a great film worth seeing if you've not checked it out yet. Followed it up with a very underrated and fun Wonder Boys from 2000, the Michael Douglas, uh, Tobey Maguire, Robert Downey Jr. film. Uh, then he directed 8 Mile, which was the rap version of Purple Rain with Eminem, which surprisingly turned out better than I thought. Uh, In Her Shoes, the uh, family dra- sibling drama with comedy with uh, Tony Collette, Cameron Diaz, and Shirley MacLaine. The poker film Lucky You with Eric Bana. Eh. And his last film was the surfing drama Chasing Mavericks, which he had to drop out due to illness and was later finished by Michael Apted. That's the one with Gerard Butler and Elizabeth Shue. So um, anyway, big salute to Curtis Hansen. All right. Um, shifting gears a little bit, there is there is a film I, uh, I got in the mail and uh, really excited to finally talk about this. So better late than never. And uh, it's a documentary, and there are certain documentary um, subjects that I'm a sucker for um, that I will easily latch on to. The music documentaries, of course, uh, films like Standing in the Shadows of Motown, 20 Feet from Stardom. uh, And this one is kind of like that. It's the documentary that was uh, directed by Colin Hanks, All Things Must Pass. The History of Tower Records. As somebody who has spent many years and time, and hours and hours, I think if you accumulated them, it would be years in a in a record store as an employee, as as a customer, and for a brief period at uh, at Vibes as an employee. Thanks, John. But it does talk about the rise and the fall of this what was an independent record store that became a massive chain, and how technology. Sometimes helped and sometimes hindered, and of course the the downfall of that. And, uh, anyway, but but some fascinating characters. Um, the these characters of ones we've seen before, whether it's High Fidelity or Empire Records, but these people actually live that life. And uh, there 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 is a certain romantic mystique of working in a record store, and uh, and that's that's kind of a lost art. So those that still do it today, I salute you. But this is a lot of fun, and it talks about the the music business and how much, it, and also how important um, record stores were for the music industry. There's a, there's a fun bit they they interviewed the likes of most notably Elton John and the stories of uh, Elton John coming in early to do some shopping and the fact that the record store clerks were knowledgeable and in their own way became celebrities or or on the outer fringe of celebrity in its own right. So anyway, it's a lot of fun. It's going to make you go through your old collection as well. Now, uh, of course, we're wrapping up Indie Jazz Fest uh, here in town, and uh, hopefully you've got to experience some of that. And sometimes uh, the the pile of movies that I watch, um, it... uh, it, it fits into certain circumstances. I have a stack of movies I've not even I've purchased that I've not even watched yet, and that happens. Uh, but however, uh, at the at the nudging of my friend Marty Bacon, I finally got to watch the Chet Baker documentary or not documentary Chet Baker uh, biopic, Born to Be Blue, starring Ethan Hawke as Chet Baker. 
Um, this is a film that I would say uh, don't end the evening with it. Uh, listen to some Chet Baker uh, probably afterwards, but it's a certain film that you don't want to f- watch it and then go straight to bed. Cleanse your palate. Watch Bob's Burgers. Watch Archer. Something else like that. Um, but it is the the biopic of the tragic, extremely talented person. That's of course Chet Baker, um, drug addiction and get, getting his face bashed in, which led to him having to re, reinvent himself as a, as an artist. Also, the struggles on and off stage. Uh, really nice scenes with Carmen Ijogo. I hope I'm saying that right. Who plays his wife? Um, but a really solid film, but it it does it will make you want to curl up in a ball at the end of the film. Uh, it probably didn't also help that before that I saw a film I was looking forward to and, and also enjoyed, but it's also a bit of a gut punch about another drug addicted musician. It's called Low Down. It stars John Hawks, who plays um, known jazz musician Joe Albany with his daughter, played by Ellie Fanning, and uh, them just trying to trying to be a family and make a living even though uh, his own worst choices get in the way of him in early 1970s Los Angeles. Flea is in this film as well, playing another uh, strung out musician. But it does capture a time where jazz is changing and uh, his character isn't quite as far as musically and his own life choices are getting in the way. So if you're up for a, uh, and by the way, this these are I would say this and Bird, you have your depressing jazz trifecta, but they're both really solid films well worth checking out. Then go to Indie Jazz Fest and watch something lighter afterwards. All right, um, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back after the break, we'll dip into the archives, so stick around. You're listening to the Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. Welcome back to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Socey. All right, we're going to dip into the archives and talk to two filmmakers who made two very fun, fascinating documentaries, and you should seek them out because, well, you're NPR listeners and you seek things out. So first, my interview with Rick Harper who made the documentary about the room, Room Full of Spoons. Joining me on Film Sociology is a man who peeked behind the curtain, and it's a documentary called Room Full of Spoons. Of course, as you know, Film Sociology is your home for uh, Tommy Wiseau information. But Rick Harper is here. Rick, how you doing, my friend? 
Hey, I'm really good. Thanks a lot for having me, Matt. Um, I would say, tell us about your first experience of watching the film The Room. Uh, the first time I watched The Room, I actually uh, watched it at home. I was uh, with my wife, and I sat her down and said, all right, we're going to watch the worst movie ever made. So we pressed play, and I guess my initial thoughts were, this really can't be that bad, because the opening montage of San Francisco is so well shot and edited, and then you have the beautiful score by Mladen Lechevic, and everything seemed fine. I'm like, how bad can this thing really be? And then Tommy walks through the door. Hi, babe. Character Johnny and says, hi, babe. Yeah. And everything changed from that moment on. <laughs> I believe there's a quote in your film that, that I, I can't remember who said it, but the, uh, yeah, the quote, accidental good instincts came into play at times. Yeah, yeah, that was a, a quote. I, I, I was quoting Sandy Shaclair, actually, when I said that. I thought it was a, a really interesting way of, of um, you know, uh, qualifying Tommy's success. I was a couple of weeks ago. I was watching uh, the film version of Valley of the Dolls, and they were talking about the definition of camp of something that's played for seri- played seriously, but it winds up becoming unintentionally funny. And uh, the the room fits that, and then some. It sure does. Yeah, I would say. Um, so, how many times did you watch? I'm gonna say, when was it when you finally got to see it with an audience? Uh, it was just the next, like probably a few weeks after I saw it on uh, on DVD. I knew that, uh, you know, I, I did a little research on it, and I knew that uh, people were throwing spoons, and there was call-out lines at the theater, and it was like a big party. So it plays at uh, my local theater here, my local art house theater called the Mayfair. So only a couple weeks later, I went to see it, and uh, it was like what an experience. It was so much different. Like, of course, it's fun to watch at home. Watching it in theaters is just a completely different experience. It's it's not even like a movie. It's more like an event. Every time you go see it, it's different. You know, people uh, shout things at the screen. They throw spoons. They dress up like characters. It's just uh, just a huge party. I say, did your wife make it through the whole film? She did. She did. She's not uh, quite as big a geek as I am. But, uh, yeah, she actually sat through it with me. Uh, she even came to the Mayfair with me a couple of times. And, you know, because of my, I guess you could call call it an obsession, with the movie, she sort of got into the whole cult phenomenon of it as well. You're a lucky man. Mine, mine lasted 30 minutes, <laughs> and and she got up and left. And my daughter, my daughter watched it, but she had to cover her eyes during the four love scenes, which takes up about a third of the film. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. It's not exactly a uh, a PG movie, but uh, <laughs> you know what? I don't blame your wife. It's uh, it's for a special type of person. Yeah. The room isn't necessarily for everyone. No, she pats she pats me on the head regularly about that. So <laughs> I was about to say because I remember I think it was the Onions AV Club. They talked about the day the day midnight movies died was when uh, Rocky Horror was available on home video. The fact that you could watch anything at any at any time, and I think the room I think they said the room single handedly helped bring back the midnight movies because since then there have been films like uh, Miami Connection and Troll Two that and Roar were where you have that midnight communal experience and and uh, you know I think the I think single-handedly the room has been that champion. Yeah, I would totally agree with you because uh I mean I'm um you know I was a little bit young when Rocky Horror came out and stuff like that so I never really got to experience that but I would hear my uncles and my dad talk about Rocky Horror and going people dressing up and it's not something that uh, it was always something that I was kind of fascinated with but never got to experience 
until The Room came out. And it was this whole new generation of people going to midnight movies and dressing up and the call-out lines and, and really having a lot of fun with it. And then, of course, movies like uh, you know Samurai Cop and Birdemic and stuff like that mm-hmm. uh, started uh, resurfacing, and, and it just sort of revived that whole cult experience. So how long did it take before you started to uh, started to do uh, pre- preparation to make the documentary? About a year from the first time that I uh, that I saw it. You know, I was going to see it every single month uh, at the Mayfair and probably after about a year the owner of the the Mayfair, you know, he always does a little introduction and uh, he said, "You know, I'm thinking of bringing Tommy uh Wizzo to Ottawa. He's doing a tour." What do you guys think of that? So right after that, I went to see him and I said, "Hey, I said, uh, you know, I really want to sponsor the event." At the time, I just really wanted to become a filmmaker, and the owner of the Mayfair, he's a filmmaker himself, so I wanted to sort of get into his circle, and then I figured if I sponsor this event, I get to meet up, I, I get to meet with him, and I get to meet Tommy Wiseau, so it was just really good math to me. So uh, we did that, and I got to meet Tommy, and immediately uh, I knew I had to do something with him. You know, I figured this is my opportunity to sort of hang out with somebody who I really admire and I think is really cool, and pursue my dream of, of becoming a filmmaker so i pitched the idea of doing a documentary and uh he was receptive right away initially yeah 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 he uh thought it was a great idea he's like yeah we can do it under Wizzo films and uh, i have a red cam and uh why don't you guys come next month uh, have a big event at the zigfeld in uh, new york city and you'll have a groovy time and you have groovy time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, uh, you know, I was really excited. I'm like, oh, wow, like my, my dream of becoming a filmmaker is coming true. And, uh, you know, Tommy invited me to New York. So, you know, I assembled a crew and, um, and you know, hired a few assistants and went to New York and, and started shooting the documentary then. Well, when I talked with Tommy about this, which which you can hear a little later on in the show, was I mean, from a filmmaking standpoint, it's hard to make a movie. It is hard. I mean, there there have been thousands of movies that have been attempted and not finished. So the fact that he was able to have a complete product, that's something we said. That's something that's that's something that not everybody can do. And uh, you know, so at the very least, there is that achievement. It's just nobody nobody quite expected what we were getting with with his finished film. Right. Um. So. How many say? How many times do you think you saw it before you got to meet Tommy? You said you saw it, we were seeing it almost every week, uh, almost every month. So almost I would say at month? least okay. a dozen times. Okay. And I mean, once you really get into it, you're not just watching it in theaters. You're watching clips on YouTube and the memes. So I was really I was living the room for about a year until uh, until I actually got to meet him. You know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's and, and a lot of people think that you know meeting Tommy is funny and his movie's funny and it's it's ridiculous and there's bad things, but absolutely there is something to. Uh, admired there because, you know, he was a first-time filmmaker, uh, clearly didn't know what he was doing, but no no real first-time filmmakers do, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, just like you said, a lot of people don't even finish their films or they just talk about it or, you know, they might have a script that they started or there's all types of obstacles, of course, money being one, and uh, he was able to fight through all that, and the result wasn't necessarily what he intended it to be, but it is, it's definitely admirable that he was able to finish it and, and, uh, and, and turn it into such a success. Now, I don't want to give away too much with your documentary, but one of the, was it your intent from the get-go to try to, I use the term, peek behind the curtain when it comes to Tommy Wiseau as a person? Not necessarily, no. Now, of course, there's a, a lot happened after that trip to New York. Uh, things sort of went awry with Tommy. Uh, he wanted to take the documentary in a different direction, now, you know, while I respect that, and in retrospect, it, it makes sense to me, but he just wanted to make 
basically an hour and a half long promotion for the room. Right. Which essentially is what a documentary is. You know, like you are promoting the movie, you're telling people that that this movie exists and why it's so special and why it's so, you know, adored. But uh, as soon as I started interviewing certain people that he didn't want me to talk to uh, and stuff like that, he backed away and just basically said that he didn't want to take part in it anymore. It was a bit discouraging initially, but then, uh, you know, like I said, in, in retrospect, it's a good thing because when you're, it, it would create a real bias if you have, you know, the, if the person you're documenting is a producer on the project. Mm-hmm. So once Tommy bowed out of the project, I decided to take it in a bit of a different direction. Uh, we interviewed all of the cast, most of the crew, a lot of people who just worked on the room peripherally or have other projects that are related to it. And then also, uh, then we decided to, you know what, there's a lot of mystery around who Tommy is. So we started doing a little bit of research to find out, to answer some of the questions that fans have been debating over for the past, uh, you know, 13 years now. Who were the people he didn't want you to talk to? Um, early on, I remember a conversation. It was the day before I was leaving to, uh, to my first time going to L.A. And uh, he told me, he said, I'm not against your project, but he said, don't interview Sandy Chaclair or the blonde guy with the glasses. <laughs> so I later found out that the blonde guy with the glasses was Michael Rousselet, who's a great guy, and I don't really know why he didn't want me to interview him. Uh, Michael Rousselet is the person who more or less discovered the room. He was one of the original fans. He was the one who uh. brought a lot of people to come see it and made it what it is today. You know. But uh, And then Sandy Chaclair is someone who he had a very public feud with, you know, Sandy claims that he was the real director of the room and uh and not Tommy. And uh we touch on that in the documentary as well. Yep. Um and then of course, you know, I, I did interview or I reached out to a lot of uh, Tommy's family members and uh he didn't like that too much either, but you know, he was no longer at that point involved in the movie and didn't really have a whole lot of say in the direction I was taking it in. So I think that I dealt with that in a very mature and respectful way, but there are certain things in the movie that uh, that he didn't want me to to reveal, and certain people he didn't want me to talk to, and stuff like that. Here, yeah, the interviews with Sandy reminded me of William Goldman's claiming that he wrote Goodwill Hunting, and, and it's like there's there is now a parallel between the room and Goodwill Hunting. That's an interesting parallel because there's a, certainly a difference in quality between the two, but. Um, but yeah, no, Sandy's—he's he's very passionate. I mean, if you—you you can look up Sandy Chaclair's IMDb. He's a very, very accomplished filmmaker. So, it's interesting in itself that somebody who's so accomplished and has worked with literally everyone in Hollywood would want to take credit for something that's considered to be the worst movie ever made. So, in itself, that that makes made for a really interesting interview. But uh, but there you have it. You know, he he claims that he directed it. And, uh, you know, that he set up every shot, told the actors what to do, and that Tommy did nothing on set except uh, act, really. And, and yell things like, don't touch the dialogue, it's genius. Yeah, and stuff like that, too. He's When he was trying to change some of the words to, to uh, you know, to uh, translate a little bit better on, onto, uh, on screen, you know, that he would say, oh, don't touch the dialogue, it's, it's genius, it's meant to be this way, and stuff like that. So... He makes fun of the movie a lot and, and basically claims that while making it, he just thought, you know, no one's ever going to see this, so I'm just going to have fun, and that he sabotaged the movie. How much of that is true is really up for the viewer to decide.
Mm-hmm. Well, and then you obviously talk to a lot of the cast and the crew, and and I think of the interviews with uh, with Juliet, who is an extremely patient human being, uh, and I know she talked about how it was it was you know it was a job at first, kind of horrifying afterwards, seeing the finished result, and then enough time has passed that she was able to embrace it. Was that the general consensus with most of the cast and crew? I think so. You know, everyone was really open about participating in this. I didn't really have to convince anyone to take part of it, to take part in it, sorry. Um, no one was, you know, really hiding from their quote-unquote fame that they got from being in the room. You know, everyone just sort of really has fun with it. I think that um, while we make fun of the movie, we as in the fans, while we make fun of the movie, there's something really genuine about it. And I think that the a lot of the actors and the people who took part in the movie know that we genuinely like them. Like they you know, we we go see them but it's not we, we don't make fun of them as a person or as an actor. We're just making fun of this silly project that they were in, you know, twelve, thirteen years ago. So, you know, while for Juliet especially, because, you know, she spends half the movie naked and she's one of the actresses who really, you know, took it seriously uh, while making it. So she really thought she was making a good movie and that this was going to be her, this was really going to kick off her career as an actress and stuff like that. So, of course, initially she was really hurt. And, and she says, you know, during one of the interviews how she wanted to dig a hole 10 feet deep and just hide until this whole thing blew over. But I think, uh, you know, I, I think once she realized that this isn't going away, she, she might as well just embrace it and just accept you know the the fame that she did get and and uh, whatever comes with it and i think she realizes now that the fans really do love her and that was an important goal of mine early on because at some of the screenings people yell really mean things about her not so much anymore but earlier on people would you know say very shaming things about the way that she looked and you know stuff like that so it was a, a important goal of mine early on to really humanize her and show the fans like look this is who juliet danielle really is and uh, and I feel I was successful in doing that. She's an absolute sweetheart, and she came across that way in the movie. Mm, yeah, again, once again, a really, really good sport. Especially, you know, her telling the story of watching it for the first time and realizing what what stayed on film. I mean, that's 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 extremely harsh. So. Um, a couple other connections we were talking about parallels of other films and and I remember in in some of the ad campaigns that there was somebody had had name dropped Tennessee Williams and the fact that he actually that Tommy actually told the composer that he was trying to make a streetcar named Desire or at least his version of it right right as far as as far as making a I and I I use the term melodrama I guess in the traditional sense not in the in the critical sense and then another one I know he he brought up was was trying to make uh his own version of a rebel without a cause that's I think where the famous catchphrase is yeah, is based yeah, upon yeah. uh but he but he but he really wanted to make a, a high drama for, of a feel from the 1950s yeah that's the, that's the impression that that uh at least he gave, you know, Mladen Milicevic, the the composer, and uh, and a lot of um, how he would, I guess, direct the actors. You know, tell them like you need to to have passion and it has to be dramatic. And you know, Greg Sestero was even quoted as saying that, uh, you know, that he said that he was going to make a movie so dramatic that people weren't going to sleep for two weeks after seeing it, and um, and you know, and, and stuff like that. And while you can see the passion in some of his acting, I mean, some of the scenes where you, you can tell he's trying to be really emotional and that this is uh, you know, more than likely a very personal story. 
to him, it just doesn't come across that way because, um, you know, I mean, I guess the quality of his acting and a lot of the directing and the story itself is, is kind of flawed and there's just so many things wrong with it that it's really it's hard to take seriously. Had it starred an entirely different cast, had it been directed by a different person, maybe he could have got those emotions across. Um, I think that's a reason that we love why we love it so much because we can see the effort on camera. Like we know there's something real there, but it just it, he just doesn't succeed in telling that story, uh, no, as dramatically as he wanted to. Can can you pinpoint when Tommy publicly decided to now what is now has become his mantra of uh, people people take the film for what it is? Do we know when that shift happened? Um, I think it was immediately after the premiere. Now, the earliest footage of Tommy saying that before a crowd that I have is from 2004 at the one-year anniversary from the release of The Room, where it was already popular amongst fans like Michael Rousselet and his friends and stuff like that. So he would rent small theaters and, uh, and, and sell tickets and you know, give away T-shirts and stuff like that. And, uh, and there's a small clip in the documentary where he says, you know, he says, keep in mind everything in this documentary was done on purpose. Everything was intentional. And then the crowd sort of chuckles a little bit because even back then they knew that it's impossible that this would all, was all on purpose. Now, according to you know, the interviews that I have, um, I think it was Scott Holmes that said that um, right after the premiere, so right after like, the, you know, the, the, the first day that it ever screened, um, you know, when people were laughing and stuff like that, uh, he went to, to Greg and said, you know, why are people laughing at my movie and stuff like that? And then Greg told him, oh, it's because your comedic timing is really good. And that possibly, if, if you ask me, I think that, that probably sort of a light bulb came above his head, right? And then he just figured like, oh, okay, let me just market it this way since people, they, they laughed and they're obviously not going to take it seriously. So instead of just getting discouraged and, and burying this project, let me just remarket it. And, uh, and and see if people respond and, and use successful in doing so. And he's now he and Greg are getting paid for each appearance on college campuses and theater houses ever since. All over the world, yeah, they've uh, they, they've been all over the world together. They tour in, in so many different cities, and it's uh, it's wild. Like I I've traveled to uh, like all over just uh, while filming uh, Roomful of Spoons, and. Uh, and it's it's incredible. Everybody knows Tommy. It's it's just really wild. Um, I guess I'm going through my notes, and I ha- I guess I have to ask, where is your respect, Rick? <laughs> Poor Tommy. He really he doesn't like me right now. While I still do have a tremendous amount of respect for him, we're not seeing eye to eye as far as the documentary is concerned. Um, you know, I, I think like we're in talks right now, and I think we're going to come to sort of an amicable resolution soon and uh you know but he's went online and done done, no made statements about uh him not supporting the documentary and shame on you videos and stuff like that he has this idea that you know that this movie is um is, is just completely disrespectful towards him and is bullying him and and all these things these terms that he uses which was of course never my intention i mean i think i'm a pretty respectful guy um, I can appreciate that if a documentary is being made about someone, that that person isn't going to agree with everything that's said, but a lot of that is, is out of my control. Uh, you know, a lot of it is people's opinions, and, um, and, and the rest is, uh, you know, and the research that I've done is, is all factual. So, you know, I don't know what his specific concerns are, but, um, you know, I, I think we're going to come to a, 
uh, you know, an amicable resolution uh, very soon. But has there been? Have you been contacted by any form of lawyers at all? I, I'm sorry, Matt. I don't really think I could talk about that. It was worth but, a shot. I um, mean, you can take that answer for what it's worth. Fair, you know? no, fair enough. I had to, yeah. I had to ask. So. Sorry, man. No, no, no. It's okay. Um, I was going to say, you. I think one of the one of the scenes that you uh, in the film is, I believe, the largest crowd you saw this with an audience was in Copenhagen. Yes. Now, I wasn't there to witness oh. that. I did go to Copenhagen, and we did, uh, you know, a screening of the room, and I did go back to screen room full of spoons. But uh, it was um, the promoter, the Scandinavian promoter, uh, Elias uh, Elias Elliot. Um, yeah, he was telling a story about how they uh, screened it in Roskilde, and I hope I pronounced that correctly. And um, they had to turn away 2,000 people. They sold 850 seats, and they had to turn away 2,000 people, and it was just uh, it was just like the biggest screening of the room in, in Europe ever. Wow. And who created the video game? Uh, that's a gentleman named Tom Falp. He's the CEO of Newgrounds. And uh, they program a lot of video games for uh, for the web and for Xbox and, and stuff like that. And um, so, yeah, he's he's a really cool guy. He's um, actually in Philadelphia. And uh, so we drove down there and interviewed him. Really, really nice guy. He said it took them, I believe, six months to make the game. And if you, uh, you know, play, playing the game is basically like watching a movie. It's every line, but then, of course, there's all this, this other fun creative stuff that's in it. And it's, uh, it's a real blast. Are the love scenes in the video game? I believe they are. I don't know how graphic they are, oh, but wow. uh, but yes, I, I believe they are. I think everything that's in the room and more is in the game. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, folks. Have it at it. It's your will. Um, so I guess, how has it been promoting the film? How many festivals have you been to so far? Uh, we submitted to a whole lot of festivals. Of course, it's, uh, it's, it's still new. We premiered in Spain at the Cutracon Festival in um, January, and that went really well. It was really, really well received. And then... Um, we have uh, a couple other festivals that are coming up that I'm not sure I can announce just yet, but okay. they will be announced uh, on our website, uh, roomfullofspoons.com, very soon. And we submitted to a lot, um, a lot of others. We did the premiere in my hometown uh, here in Ottawa, and uh, you know it was an almost sold-out event, and it was uh, again a great success. And we, um, you know, I did a little bit of touring while I was in Europe after uh, after the uh, Spanish uh, premiere. Went to Copenhagen, and we went to um, to the UK and just did uh, just a few test screenings just to see how audience were responding to it and to see if there were some edits that we can make. And the, the response has been unanimous. Like people are really, really enjoying it, uh, which is, is it's validating for me because I really made this for the fans. You know, being a big fan of uh, of the room and and uh, and you know, and it has such a an important cult following that I wanted to make something that was worthy of its fan base, and uh, and so far people are really digging in. Has it been allowed to have be on a double bill with the room? Not yet, and that's something that I'm working on with Tommy right now, because I feel that it could be, uh, you know, that could be really successful. I think people are going to want to watch Room Full of Spoons more than once. It's, um, you know, I've been told it's hilarious, which is fun for a documentary because a lot of times documentaries is just you know, an overload of information, which is fun in itself, but some of the uh, the stories that people tell and stuff, people really crack up, especially in theaters. And, uh, and uh, you know, so I think that people could re- would really have fun with it, and I think it would play great with the room. So uh, it's, it's my hopes that that's going to uh, eventually work out, that we can uh, double bill it with the room. Well, I think, I think Room Full of Spoons is the hearts of darkness of, of the room itself. So, uh, you know, you, you have a good company as far as the making behind. Um Thanks. You're welcome. Have you 
do you have another project lined up for once this uh, once this dies down, or are you just still in the in the whirl of uh, promoting the film? We are promoting the film right now, and we have uh, you know some tours coming up. So I'm going back to uh, to Europe in June, and then um, you know we're going to Australia in July and, and stuff like that. And of course, we're going to be touring the U.S. Uh, in May and June probably. But uh, we do. We are flirting with some ideas right now. Whether that's going to be another documentary or like a, a scripted film, we're not 100% sure on just yet. But uh, nothing worthy of announcing. But we do. We are, you know, sort of toying with some ideas right now. And uh, what what was your take on the book? And I know they're trying to make a film out of uh, the Disaster Artist. Uh, the book was fantastic. The book was is. Uh, it's it's really it's, it's the room bible like i was um i didn't really know what to expect because a lot of the stories i knew already and and stuff like that but hearing it from greg's perspective and and if you listen to the audiobook hearing greg's impression of tommy is just is absolutely fantastic so i uh, i think the book is is genius you know as a fan of the room i almost get a little emotional when i read it you know but um and the James Franco project, I mean, I'm really hoping that it's going to be, um, th- that it's going to translate well onto film. I mean, the audiobook itself is, I think, 11 or 12 hours. So to try to condense all those stories and, and all those years into an hour and a half uh, film, or however long it's going to be, I, uh, I, I really hope that it, um, I, I hope it's going to be good. I really do. And I think James Franco's the right guy to play Tommy. I think he's going to do a fantastic job. He's a great actor. And, um, and then, yeah, I guess we'll see. I'm excited for it, though. Well, fans of the room, just I think once it, it, it's a very addictive film. Once you experience it, you want others to experience it. You want to know as much as you can about it. And uh, and I would say, Rick, congratulations on Roomful of Spoons as far as providing that for fans of the room. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Matt. I appreciate that. Hey, everyone. This is Tommy Wiseau, and you're listening now film sociology at the WF. Why I Now my chat with Mike Malloy, who made the very fun documentary about Italian exploitation films, Eurocrime. Joining me on Film Sociology right now, the writer, director, editor, and co-producer of the documentary Eurocrime. Who do you think you are, John Sales? Mike Malloy is here. Hi, Mike. Hey there. What is the reference? Because I have an exclamation point? Is that it? <laughs> no, the writing, directing, editing, oh, co-producing. See, I see. Or you're Robert Rodriguez. He's another one who edits his own work, I believe. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, the editing was a real hitch on this one. A uh, year plus on the editing. Wow. I would say, um, so of course your documentary is about the Italian police and crime movies of the 70s. What was your, you personally, what was your first Euro crime movie experience? Well, that a lot of people ask me like uh what film, you know, pushed me over into Eurocrime obsession and it didn't happen that way at all for me. Uh I got into these films before I knew they were a genre. I you know, I would just see selected isolated little Italian made crime films and it never occurred to me that this was a whole genre. This was something that came after the spaghetti westerns because the Italians were very fat oriented and they would burn something out and then they'd move on to something else. And after the Italians had ripped off the American western, put on their own spin and came up with something entirely different, after they exhausted that, they turned to Dirty Harry, cop films, and The Godfather, gangster films. And they did that from like 1972 to 1980. 
So I was just seeing all these films, and like in college and stuff, people would say, what kind of movies do you like, Mike? And I would tell them why. You know, I like Italian films. I like French films. They thought I probably was watching highbrow stuff like, you know, the 400 Blows or something like that. And meanwhile, I was watching these, uh, you know, shoot ups with all these grisly murders in them. And they always had, a, you know, usually an American or English star and a director, and it's usually listed, directed by Nick Jones. You're like, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes they would anglicize the uh, the director's names or something like that. But that that happened more with the spaghetti westerns. By the time the Euro crime films came around, uh, pretty people pretty much knew that they were getting uh, an Italian product out of Italy. But the Euro crime films didn't penetrate the U.S. like the spaghetti westerns did. So that's why now you know this this revival movement that kind of spurred me to do the documentary, uh, you know. 30 years belated, these films are finally, you know, resonating with American audiences. So I guess I'll, I'll try a different approach on what What were the films that did motivate you to start this documentary? Oh, there, there are a number of them. Uh, the thing is, is that, uh, you know, there's so many different cuts and there's so many different titles. Like there's one that I love called Rome Armed to the Teeth, but I only recommend it in its assault with a deadly weapon incarnation uh, because... Um, I don't know, they they just lopped off the first 20 minutes and made it a much better film under the title Assault with a Deadly Weapon. Uh, but, you know, some of the ones that have been available for streaming on Netflix that people can easily see are things like Caliber 9 and Street Law. Street Law is a great vigilante film, uh, and there's some debate as to, you know, because everybody just assumes that the Italians are the rip-off artists. Um, but there's some debate as to whether Street Law came out before Death Wish. They both are 1974 films. Right, and uh, as, as say as you point out in the in the documentary, one of the things that the Italians did to make it their own was the amount of violence and cruelty, I mean, misogynistic cruelty and sex scenes in it. Um, was that from the get go? Uh, yeah, the Italians did not have the same puritanical influences that American cinema did, or the American cinema was you know shedding by that time, but still had the last vestiges of uh, the Italian cinema. You know. The main thing that I see difference as far as their boundaries of violence is the Italians almost delighted in killing kids. And that's still in American cinema was a big taboo. But, yeah, there would be like this one movie where there's a, a bunch of kids, kids getting out of school and they happen upon the scene of a bank robbery. So this whole school's worth of kids around this corner, right, as some, you know, bank robber with an itchy trigger finger just, you know, is ready to down people, and he does exactly that. Uh, just, it's just unbelievable the carnage where kids are concerned. It's funny you mentioned that because last year, I don't know if you ever saw Hobo with a Shotgun, but they have a whole, I, a whole school bus gets torched up filled with kids. Yeah, as I say, America, uh, North American cinema, I know that was Canadian, but North American cinema has finally kind of uh, shed some of those boundaries, but the Italians were, you know, a good 30 years ahead of us. Uh. And one of the things that was brought up, and I know Fred Williamson brought this up, about how American uh, American audiences and some American actors were kind of pampered as far as getting the best and the biggest budgets, and the fact that, you know, he, he was shooting movies there where, they didn't even stay quiet during shooting. And, you know, a lot of it was dubbing later, but it was a completely different shooting environment. Yeah, you kind of bring up two different things. Uh, the one, they did not shoot live sound, so that was an adjustment for American actors to show up on set, and as they're 
giving their line deliveries, yeah, the, the sets are being built next door and people are pounding with hammers and people are out, uh, ordering their cappuccino and, uh, you know, stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, that was a big adjustment. But then also uh, something that Fred Williamson, uh, the American star, alluded to is the fact that, you know, you show up and there's no star egos in an Italian crew. Uh, there was no barriers. There was no hierarchy on set. Everybody was just there to make a movie. And, uh yeah, uh, maybe the only ego or macho uh, thing was uh, the Italians. Uh, everybody wanted to perform their own stunts. The big leading stars, you know, it was just expected uh, that, you know, this was a manly, you know, tough guy movie. Of course I'm going to, you know, jump out of the car myself. Of course I'm going to jump out of the second-story building myself. Uh, you know, the, uh, I don't know, the French actor Jean-Paul Belmondo big, big international star, you know, became a star with the French New Wave movies, uh, you know, these dramas. But by the, the time the Eurocrime movies rolled around in the 70s, uh, man, he, he went full bore into performing the stunts. I don't even know how they got insurance for those movies. Did they have insurance, I guess is the question. Yeah, I don't know. These uh, I, I've never. That's one aspect that I've never really delved into. But these movies are so run and gun, you know. With the, you know, they not only did they get the leading men to perform their own stunts, but they would just go out in public and what are, what they called stealing shots. Uh, you know, they would just go and for, perform, you know, shootouts on the open public streets, and people just were assuming that uh, you know this was, you know, they were seeing some bank heist in progress and stuff. So it was very easy to get the the extras to act naturally. Well, and, and there was a little bit of that. I mean, there still is in, in the United States. I mean, we've, we've heard stories of Cassavetes and early Kubrick doing such things, but not to the degree of these guys. And, of course, it also helped that a lot of the Italian filmmakers also had to deal with a lot of the local quote-unquote characters. Yeah, yeah, especially down in southern Italy and areas like Naples. Um, the street people were a major influence, and, you know, uh, the, you know, there would be beggars on the corners and stuff, and if if you wanted to shoot on that corner, then you had to pay the beggar what he thought he was going to make for the day and, and stuff like that. So in some ways it was a minor hassle to shoot down in southern Italy, but uh, in another way it was just uh, – they were just tremendous – the filmmakers were tremendously liberated to just go out and do whatever, and they, they didn't – they didn't feel beholden to scripts either. You know, they would they would pass a unique location, and they're like, ah, let's just change it from a, a, a scene at the beach to a scene at church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so yeah, it's just they they were very spontaneous, and that's what a, a lot of the uh, actors and directors looking back say. Yeah, these films were extremely low budget, but they had you know just the, such a life to them because of the spontaneity, and they're such unpredictable. And today's movies, you know, you you see them, and you know. As one, as one interviewee said, you almost know when the car's going to explode before it explodes. Mm-hmm. And the Italian films, just things came at you crazy-like, and you just didn't know what to expect. Now, uh, yeah, a lot of the actors uh, did say if, if there was still business, they would, they would not only do business in Italy, but also live there. What happened? Well, uh, the first decline in Italian cinema uh, happened at the end of the Eurocrime boom, uh, coincidentally. It had nothing to do with Eurocrime, but that's when, belatedly, the Italians started getting uh, more television. Because up till that point, they had only had about one and a half channels, and there was a very big restriction on how many movies could be shown on TV. So uh, the Italians went to the cinema maybe four or five times a week, uh, you know, kind of like we tune into stuff on TV four or five times a week. Um, and uh, by the mid-'70s, they finally started getting TV. They got satellites and, you know, antennas and stuff and started to bring in stuff from other countries. And so the uh, 
uh, film industry went into sharp decline then. They they kept on through the 80s. They turned to, to Mad Max ripoffs. They turned to Indiana Jones ripoffs. But, um, you know, by the end of the 80s, it, it, had pretty, it had wound down even more. Yeah, I remember Fred Williamson with a bow and arrow and shoulder pads and a headband, and that, that equaled the future. Yeah, yeah, that's that was their version of Mad Max. Uh, Mad Max and then throwing a little dash of Escape from New York, and that's that's what the Italians were obsessed with in the 80s. <laughs> now, you also, one of the things that's most impressive about Eurocrime are the number of people you were able to, uh, to get to sit down and talk. How many people did you talk to, and how long did it take to get everybody? Uh, I think we talked to 21 people that made the doc, and then uh, some came kind of afterwards that we hope to be including as DVD supplements or something like that. Um, yeah, it's uh, it was. I, I've never. I had never during the production of this whole thing. I had never left the country. I've never been to Italy. I've never been to Rome. The interviews that we picked up in Rome uh, were we. Uh, a great guy named Federico Cadeo uh, happens to shoot DVD supplements for the the big cult. DVD labels over in Europe, and he would, you know, drop a line to me and say, hey, I'm shooting an interview and so-and-so, do you want me to piggyback some Eurocline questions on? So that worked out beautifully. And how many uh, how many actors and filmmakers did you personally interview? Um, uh, seven to nine, I think. Uh, you know, this was a real no-budget affair, um, you know, with, you know, basically – uh, uh, fueled by fan support, so you know, we got some money on Kickstarter by the fans and everything. So uh, when I could limit my travel, I did. I you know tried not to be egotistical and to think that I needed to be there. I wrote all the questions for all the interviews, but I didn't feel as if I needed to be there in person if I had someone trusted that could you know set up the camera in my place. Okay, big geeky question: What was it like to interview Franco Nero? Uh, Franco Nero was very, very cool, but we kind of surprised him. Uh, I drove down to Miami, and um, he was there for a film festival, and I made a deal with the guy who uh, put him up. And uh, Franco Nero, I come into the house with the camera crew and everything, and Franco Nero was actually coming out of a, a hidden door in a false bookcase. How surreal is that? <laughs> <laughs> and he looks up, and there's a film crew uh, in, his, in the living room where he's staying. So... Um, yeah, that was that was my first time laying eyes on Franco Nero. <laughs> well, and, and the fact that the man's still working today, uh, decades later, and supposed, and of course, you know, started out in spaghetti westerns and moved on to Euro crime when he when he wasn't wooing Guinevere. Uh, right, right. Uh, yeah, he's he's remained very relevant. Uh, it, all this Django Unchained stuff aside, yeah, he was uh, recently in an ep episode of Law and Order. He was, uh, you know, in that Letters to Julia thing. Yep. Uh, yeah, so he's he's staying very relevant, and I'm very pleased because you know he's a he's a tremendous movie star. Now, did you see or or were aware of the documentaries? Not quite Hollywood. Machete Maidens Unleashed when making this. Uh, yeah, the Eurocrime again. Uh, this was not like not quite Hollywood, which had, uh, which I presume had Australian Cultural Commission dollars behind it. This was just one guy. I started the documentary in my living room. I had to finish it in the upstairs of my girlfriend's parents' house because it cost me my ability to pay rent even. Mm -hmm. um, so this was just, uh, uh, you know, and I hate to say I was a one-man army because that doesn't do credit to the people who, you know, volunteered. I had a volunteer narrator. I had a volunteer animator. Uh, so I don't want to ever, you know, slight those people. And, you know, as I mentioned, the cameramen and stuff who helped me. Um, but, yeah, this was – so I actually started before Not Quite Hollywood, but um, – yeah, that you know that stuff came out 
while I was uh, still putting the finishing touches on mine. And by the way, One Man Army sounds like a Franco Nero film in 1978. Uh, why can't it be a Franco Nero movie in, you know, 2012? Well, we, we established he's still a movie star. Well, good. You talk to him then. I'll review it then. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> so, Mike, if, if people, besides uh, wanting more information, uh, let's let's start with, uh, for more information on how to find your documentary, what, what should folks do? Uh, the Big Gathering Place now is on Facebook, facebook.com slash Eurocrime. Okay. And if if folks were trying to do Eurocrime 101, what, what films should they start with? Well, yeah, the ones that, and I think that some of them just came off Netflix Instant, but the, the ones you can start with uh, that have been available for a long time on Netflix have been uh, The Italian Connection, Caliber 9, Street Law. Those are those are three solid, because I think that the core of Eurocrime movies are, you know, kind of this one man against the world kind of theme, and I think all three of those embody that pretty well. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for your interest. That's Mike Malloy, director of the fun documentary Eurocrime. Ladies and gentlemen, some words to live by. Soylent Green is people. Zardas has spoken. Go see a good movie. You deserve it. Hope to see you at A Few Good Men at Richmond Civic this weekend and next weekend. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. Good afternoon, Fort Myers. Good afternoon, California. Good afternoon, Michigan.